All right, you guys, you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 34 is where we're going to be this week. I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you so much for all the things that you put in our lives, Lord, even the hard things, even the cold weather that's outside, Lord. Um, I thank you um, for the sun that will drive that cold weather away eventually, and um, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we can be together here and study your word. Um, come to know you more, and I ask God that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, as we discuss this issue of supernatural things and faith, I pray, God, that you'd bring clarity through your word into our hearts and into our minds, Lord, so that we may walk uh, with understanding, may we may live with understanding of what it means in regards to faith and what you want to do in our church, in our community, in us and through us, and Lord, we love you for these things, that you are faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 32, it says, Now came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in um, Lydia and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydia was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter, verse 40, put them all out and knelt down and prayed, turning to the body. He's, uh, in turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. I love this passage of scripture. And um, before we get into it, I just want to clarify a few things as we move into it. Because what we read here kind of seems disjointed in relationship to the context of what we've been reading so far. And if you remember when I began the book of Acts, I pointed out that the book of Acts when you break it down and look to study it in context, it should be broken down into three particular divisions. That's what we see. And the source for these divisions is found in, in chapter 1, verse 8, where Luke reminds us of how the disciples were commanded by Jesus right prior to ascending into heaven, the Great Commission. He said, wait, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you, right? And then go and be witnesses of Him, of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus in Jerusalem. And then he said, into Judea and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And the distribution of the gospel message in regards to Jesus' command is the dividing points that break up this book. The book of Acts is really not a book of the, uh, 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 of the Acts of the Apostles. It's the 
the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle. Meaning, as we look at this in this division, the witness of Jesus and the proclamation of the Gospel message first to the Jews in Jerusalem, right? That section is found in, in chapters 1 through 7, which we've already studied through. The second division where we are now is the documentation of the Gospel message be taken to the Jews in Samaria and into Judea. And that, that, the record of this continues on into chapter 12. But the third and final section of the book of Acts is chapters 13 through 18. And it's the record of the gospel message going out to the Gentiles, right? Scattering the word of God throughout all the ends of the earth. However, within these three subdivisions is, is stuff like what we're reading now. There's two subsections, a parenthesis for us in the, the overall story, the overall account of what the Holy Spirit was doing within these three divisions. The first is here and now, and, it, and it's the record of Peter's ministry. And the second section is the account of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He was the apostle sent to the Gentiles. And so we've already been introduced to Paul, but we will, we will, we will pick back up with his life and his story in, in a little while, right? Actually, when we get, get to chapter 12. So here in verse 32, there's this shift in the text that accounts the working of the Holy Spirit now through the life of Peter and also the other disciples. So in this first subsection, what will take us through the next three chapters of our study through the book of Acts, Luke continues by accounting the works of the Holy Spirit that were done through Peter, and, 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 and we see that he is bringing the message of the gospel message now beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Since the day of Pentecost, until the scattering of the church, right, through the persecution of Paul, six years had passed. Approximately 25,000 people were there in the church. The church was in Jerusalem. That was it. And, and yet what we see is, is that made the opportunity for the persecution, for the gospel message to go into Judea and Samaria. And, and what we read of now in this sub-prethesis, sub uh, this, this, this subsection of Scripture is that we are given the answer or we're, 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 a bridge is being built for us to see how it was taken also to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. This is where it began. And when we get into chapter 10, next week we're going to read the first record of the gospel going to someone who had no ties to Judaism. We know that there's already been a Gentile con convert, the, the, the eunuch from Ethiopia, Right, But he was a convert is what we, we see. He was already converted to Judaism. And he'd come and he had heard about the Christ. And he was reading right in, in, in Scripture. And, and God sent one of the, the disciples to, to, to help this man on his journey. I won't go back all of that. But this is the, we'll see in chapter 10, a Gentile, a, a pagan. Uh, someone had no ties to Judaism at all. Not a convert. But before we get there, we read in these last verses of chapter 9 how God was gradually preparing Peter's heart to share the good news message of Jesus to the Gentiles. It was a progression of work inside of Peter so that God might work through Peter, right? Just like, like we had already read. And it's significant to see this work because the Gentiles and the Hebrew people had great cultural divides that stood be between them. Um, and we know that God had already... Tearn, torn down some great cultural divides even within the Hebrew, the, the nation of Israel be, between these Hebrew 
brothers and sisters, we read about it in regards to the Hellenists, right? The Greek-speaking Jews who held some of the Greek customs there within the church. And then we know that when, when the gospel message was taken to the Samaritans who, who were also inside of Israel, Hebrews, they were, they were seen as outcasts because they were, they were a mixed race, so to speak. They were, the, the, the Hebrew people found them not even worthy to be able to come and worship at the temple. But that's not how God saw it. And God tore down all of these divisions, even within the nation of Israel. And, and we see that going on in light of this scripture here. And it's important for us to remember that the Jewish people traditionally had no dealings with the Gentiles. Traditionally. In fact, if a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman went with or went into, had contact with or went into the home of a Gentile, it was considered uh, an unclean act. Something that would make a person uh, defiled, spiritually unclean. And as a result, they had to go through uh, a regiment of ritual cleansings that the, the Mosaic law said must take place. So as a whole, the Hebrew people had no use for Gentiles. It's been said that they believed that anyone who was not a Jew, meaning Gentile, was only good for feeding the fiery furnaces of hell. Throw another log on the fire kind of a thing. Throw another Gentile on the fiery furnaces of hell. But we know that, that the good news message of Jesus being, being the resurrected Lord and Savior, it's a message for all people. Jesus made that very clear. And we know that, the, the, that God shows no partiality. We've, we've talked about this to gender or to nationality when it, when, it, when it comes to his gift of grace and forgiveness. And ultimately we know that God's will, we're told very specifically, is that none should perish but that all would come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That they would confess their sins and be saved. And so as we consider that for what we read here in verse 32, it says, now it came to pass, came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. And this excursion beyond the walls of Jerusalem, right, where he's going throughout the nation of Israel, makes this opportunity, affords this opportunity for the supernatural things that we read of here. First is the healing of this man who was paralyzed. And then we see this raising from the dead. And when we read passages like this, I think which accounts for the supernatural miracles that took place in the early church that we read of throughout the, the whole book of Acts, I think always what comes up is the subject of faith and as it finds its way to the surface. How is faith working with these supernatural acts through the miraculous that enters into our lives and that we read about here? And, and this is due to the fact that we as God's people desire in some way to see and be a part of the supernatural things of God, Right? Do you? I do. I mean, I hear people all the time read the book of Acts and question and wonder. Or we hear about miracles going on in the world, but not in America, right? And I, I don't necessarily agree with that, that thought process. I think there are a lot of miraculous things going on here in the United States of America still. Um, that's the, the, that, that point of discussion is for another time. But we, we want to see God working in, in miraculous ways. And in Scripture, when we come to sections of Scripture like this, we see a clear relationship between faith and the supernatural workings of God. We do. And in Scripture, we see a clear relationship between these things, yet many times it can be confusing for us to try to understand this relationship. And I think it's that way because we as human beings try to come up with some kind of prescribed formula, right, for how faith interacts with the work of God. However, when we look at the supernatural works of God and their relationship to faith, we need to keep in mind we need to keep in mind this very foundational truth. 
that God's works cannot be confined to a set formula. The workings of God cannot be confined to a set formula. In other words, we can't think that if faith is exercised in a particular way, that it's going to equal God working in a particular way. If we do this, then we're forgetting a basic truth, a simple truth. God says that, he says, all my ways are high above your ways. And he says, I'm a sovereign God, and, and my will is not subject to the ways of men. And when we examine God's word in proper context, it clearly speaks to the fact that there are no prescribed formulas attached to exercising of faith and the bringing forth of the supernatural works of God. And the fact of the matter is, is, that if, is, is I've considered all of this, if there's any consistency, like that's what we're saying, the formula, the prescribed formula, what, what's the consistency? What's the working? What's the order? If there's any consistency that can be seen by us between the works of God and the exercising of our faith, it's the inconsistency of the relationship. Meaning that the works of God are not dependent upon our faith, and the working of God in our life is wholly and completely upon God's faithfulness to us. I don't know about you, but that's a very comforting thought. Listen. The working of God in our life is wholly and completely dependent upon God's faithfulness to us. And when we consider, we, and, and we consider this when we consider when Jesus, think about this for a second. When Jesus was walking on earth, we know earth, he performed many miracles. From healing a woman who had a headache to rising people from the dead. But when we look at the, the, the whole of it, we see that his actions exampled this truth in regards to faith and God's faithfulness. And I say this because when we look to the gospel accounts, we are told that sometimes Jesus healed people according to the faith that they demonstrated. They demonstrated faith, and Jesus responded to that. And, and Jesus even called people to, to, to exercise faith. He called them to enter into faith and said that at some point that 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 uh, that person's faith had made them well if you remember this was the the situation with the woman who had been sick had this ailment of the flow of blood for so long none of the doctors could heal her and she said she thought if i could just keep touch the hem of the garment of jesus and she was in the crowd and she reached out and touched jesus's garment and jesus stops like who touched me remember his disciples are like lord are you there's so many people around us. Everybody's touching you. And he, he, he addresses it and he finds the woman and he says to her, right, it's your faith that has made you well. And yet, yet what we see is that there were other times of healings, the, the things that Jesus did, the supernatural things, where the faith that was demonstrated wasn't even the faith of the person being healed. It was the faith of a family member or a friend. I remember the instance of when Peter was in his house, and Jesus was in there, and there was crowds of people, and he was teaching, and these guys wanted his, their paralyzed buddy to be healed, and they're like, let's get up on Peter's roof. We know he's a super tough, rough fisherman, but we'll just rip a hole in his roof and lower our friend down. And they demonstrated faith, and, and Jesus recognized that, and, and she, she healed, he, he healed this man. And there were other times when Jesus did supernatural works where, hear this, the very the, the 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 faith was little faith that was being exercised. 
little faith. That's the, that's the word that's actually used. And, and there were other times when supernatural works were performed, miraculous things that Jesus did where there was no demonstration of faith. And even in unbelief, Jesus worked. And one of the things about faith in relationship to the works of God is told to us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. And I think this should be our focal point. It says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those things who diligently seek him. And in light of this, we should understand that faith is, faith is, is, is first and foremost a virtue that pleases God and not necessarily a virtue that causes God to move or take action in the way that we would want or when we would want. And, and with this knowledge, we should, we should view passages like this here in chapter 9 where we read about these miraculous healings that the Holy Spirit did through the Apostle Peter. But I will say this. I want to keep it, I want to keep it, I want to bring everything together. So let me, let me put this. When considering the relationship between the supernatural and faith, it should be said that the whole substance of religion, I use that word loosely, and when I'm referring to, I'm meaning relationship, right? But look at it like this. The whole substance of religion, our relationship with God and the spiritual practices that are foundational in our relationship with God, the whole substance of it is these three things. Scripture tells us all over and over again. Apostle Paul writes about it. He says, these three things abide. What? Faith, hope, and love. And it keeps, it keeps coming back to this over and over again in Scripture. And by the practice of these three virtues, what happens in that is, is we become united to the will of God. And this is why we read in Hebrews that without faith it is impossible to please God. Why? Simply put, for it is impossible to be united to the will of God without faith. And so everything that we should be, everything we do, let me say it this way, should be used as a means to our end in regards to the relational part of our, um, our faith, meaning, meaning the relationship with Christ, with God. Um, everything we do should be used as a means to our end, which is ultimately, I would say, swallowed up or, or enveloped by faith and love. And what do I mean? I mean all things are possible to the person who believes. All things are possible to the person who believes, and they're less difficult to the person who has hope. But they are easiest to the person who perseveres in the practice of all three of these virtues, faith, hope, and love. And so when we keep these things in mind and look back now to verse 32, I think we see our first point of understanding regarding a faith that is pleasing to God. Do we not want to have a faith that is pleasing to God? I think we do. And so what does that look like? And here in this verse, we're told that Peter went through all parts of Israel, all of the country, and he also came down to the saints in Lydia. Lydia was a city located about 25 miles west of Jerusalem. It's about 10 miles off of the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's there in the middle. And when we in Ended last week's study, what we read is that with Saul's conversion, there was a time of peace. That is significant to the context of that we're reading. There was a time of peace with the, belief, with the, with the church at that time. There had been great persecution, but with Saul's conversion, there was a time of peace. We know that Saul's out of country now for three years. He's a believer. The, the, the persecution has, has subsided. 
And this means to the church in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. Yet what we now see is that Peter was not just resting comfortably in Jerusalem. Instead, he was on the move. He was traveling throughout the country of Israel, just as Jesus had commanded. And if you remember, there was a time that they were not doing this. Again, six years after the day of Pentecost, before the the persecution came on the church, and God said, I'm going to use this to scatter you into Judea, into Samaria. And the word of God went out like seed, scattered. And the church grew is what we, we read as a result of that. And now that there was peace, the apostles had been in Jerusalem for some time, and those who were going out, we read about these. They weren't initially the, the apostles, Peter being apostle. Apostle, We read now in verse 33 that, that, that not only was on the move, but we see what he was doing. He was in Lydia as he found a man by the name of Aeneas who had been paralyzed for eight years, and he healed him. And it, it was this miraculous healing that caused all that dwelt in Lydia and uh, those in the coastal plains of Sharon, and you look on a map that's basically up north to, to, to Mount Carmel, um, uh, go check it out. And if you, you have never seen it on a map and you want to see it in person, hopefully someday we get to go. And it kind of pops in your mind and becomes real, these places that we read about. Um, but these people in this great area, it says they turn to the Lord. And the underlying point of, a point of this is to illustrate, I believe, this word, this story, this account is to illustrate for us how, how the Apostle Peter, who had been previously content right, with ministering there in Jerusalem, he was now on the move, and he was stepping out in faith, and he was looking for opportunities to be used by God. And as a result of these steps of faith, this is what happened. As a result of these steps of faith, supernatural, miraculous things were taking place through Peter's life. And I think it's important to take notice of this because it's this aspect of faith that demonstrates for us what is pleasing to God. It says faith is pleasing to God. How is that? What is that? What does that look like? Well, one of the pleasing aspects of faith to God is that it, it, it calls us to be on move. In other words, a faith that pleases God is a faith that moves us. It's a faith that causes us to be moved out of our places of comfort and to not be content with settling for less than what God has called us to. I know in a passage of Scripture it says, that contentment is a good thing, but it says contentment with godliness is a good thing. And I think sometime in our society, in our culture, our way of thinking, even within the church, we misplace contentment for apathy. And there's a big difference. Not being content, not being apathetic by settling for something for less than what God has called us to do. And as we step out of our places of comfort, you know what? We're to be actively looking for opportunities to be directly used by God. Remember, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, we're encouraged to do so by this, these words. It says, trust in the Lord. Have faith, is what it's saying. Trust in the Lord. With all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding. With your heart and in your mind, acknowledge your ways. Acknowledge Him in all of your ways. And He... He shall direct your path. And I believe that as followers of Jesus, we often, we often miss out. Like, we want to see the hand of God working in our lives, working through our church. And I think we often miss out on seeing the hand of God working in and through our lives in supernatural ways because we sit idle in content places, in, 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 in places of comfort, or, or, or we even sometimes may stand fearful, right, in a defensive position, 
rather than moving forward in our faith. And guys, I get it. In this world that we live in right now that's so hostile to Christianity where darkness seems to be prevailing and yet we have the light of God in us, it can be intimidating that we think we just got to hold up in the defensive position, but we're never called as those to be followers of Christ to, 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 to remain or to be in a place of defense. The only times that you can ever maybe make a biblical case for that is when the disciples, as we read about in, in the book of Acts, were told by Jesus to like go and wait. But it wasn't like, be hold up, guys, until it's a safe time and a safe place. He said, just wait for the power of God, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. I think one of the greatest examples of this idea of taking a step in faith, right? Trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, acknowledging Him in our ways, and, and letting the Holy Spirit direct our paths. I think a good biblical example of this is when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. It's recorded for us in Joshua chapter 3. Please go read it. I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but I'm going to mention a few things about it. Because in that account, we're told that when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River to enter into the promised land, that the river was at flood stages. Think about the Arkansas River today. We could probably find a way across it and not even get our feet wet. But try doing that in the May or June, right? We know what it's like to experience the raging waters of a river in the season when it can flood. Uh, and, and the Jordan River does flood its banks most of the time, not all the time. And, and it's, it's from the, the, the water that comes down from Mount Hermon up north. And we know that mountain will even get snow on it and it melts and it all comes down through the Jordan and into the Dead Sea. But, but this was the, 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 the obstacle that was in their way. Normally, it's about 100 feet wide. It can be only about 3 to 10 feet deep. I've got to do baptisms in the Jordan River, and I've always envisioned the mighty Jordan River. Um, and, and when I got there to do it, I'm like, this is a stagnant, stale, brown thing. <laughs> but it was not at the time of year when the water was flowing either. It was not impressive. But when we think about the time in which God had called his people, we see that God had told his people to enter the promised ground land at this time, and this was the route that God had told his people to travel. And, and God did this at this time because he wanted to demonstrate that nothing but the mighty hand of God could have made it safe for the people to cross at this time. You know, Joshua could have said, hey, Lord, we've been hanging out at Gilgal here for quite some time. We're going to go in. Can we wait a couple of months? That wasn't what it was. God was calling them to faith to faith. But when God called them to this task, you know, he told Joshua to get the priest, to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and that they were to go to the water's edge. The people were to follow. They were to stand back a certain distance, and they were to take this step of faith, right? They were to put their feet into the water of the Jordan River there on the banks. And that when they did this, God promised that he would cut off the waters flowing downstream and stand them up in a heap and that the people would then walk across on dry land. You see, by this, God was literally calling his people out of their place of comfort, right? To take a step of faith. And we know that as soon as they reached the Jordan River and the priest's feet touched the water's edge, well, that's exactly what happened is what God said. The waters from upstream stopped flowing. The point is this, stepping out in faith and moving forward is what allows for us to see the mighty works of God. And God calls us to be moving forward in faith, yet too, all too often I think we stand still because of fear. We come to the water's edge, figuratively speaking, and we see the raging 
mess of the flooding river, and we go, I, I can't put my foot out in that. But listen, in those times, we forget some very key things. In that time, we forget that we've been given a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of a sound mind, not a spirit of fear. And think about it. This, we further forget this, that the message that God has sent us out with is a message of power. As the message of Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, the Bible says, is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. This week on Friday, I got to go, I got to, go to the celebration of life ceremony for the with four-month-old little baby who I mentioned last week had passed away. And the parents of the child wanted the uh, celebration of life to be like a church service where songs were being sung. And they wanted their pastor to give a gospel message, not an altar call, but to clearly lay out the gospel message because they knew. They knew where their daughter was at, which is a hopeful thing. They knew that they believed in Christ. They would see her again, but they also wanted anyone else who would come to that ceremony to hear the message of, of power. And I was, I was like hitting the face with it in such a simplistic way again, maybe because of the emotion of being there with everybody and the circumstances, and maybe it's just a, a thing of God. But that, that pastor shared the gospel message just simply, saying, going through it, you know, it's, we're, we, we are all sinners. And the wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve as a result of breaking God's commands. The requirement for eternal life to be with God, to escape this world and to live in heaven, the requirement is perfection, yet none of us meet that requirement. But because God so loved us, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us so that our sins would be forgiven, so that our debt would be paid, because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is the message that he spoke. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, God saves us by grace. Not because of what we do, but because of his love and what he does for us. Guys, that's the message of power that we've been equipped with. It's the power that leads a person to salvation and a power that works supernaturally to change people's lives. It's been given to us. And if we believe that, so then why do we stand still so often with this message of power? Why do we stand still on the edge of the banks knowing that God has placed His Spirit in us, the Holy Spirit fills us with the power and the wisdom of God and do nothing? 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 16, 19. Listen to this. It says, imagine this. Just think about this. God in heaven right now, knowing that He's placed His, His Holy Spirit in us, power and wisdom and not fear, but of love and a sound mind and the gospel message that has, it has the ability to penetrate the hardest, darkest heart. We know because that was us. And to change it, to give a person a new heart, to save them from the grip of death, and give them eternal life. We know this and God says this. For the eyes, my eyes, run to and fro throughout the whole earth. So that I can, sh I can show myself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are faithful to Him. 
As we take these steps of faith, God's going, I'm just waiting and watching to be able to do something miraculous and supernatural through you, to show my power through you. And so Peter was used by God as he moved by faith according, as he moved according to faith, and, and he took the opportunities that God presented. As a result, the paralyzed man was healed. As a result, two cities uh, throughout this region, full of people turned to the Lord. And the lesson for us is to see how God's desires for us to be a part of the things that he's doing. But we must be on the move. Like Peter was. Imagine, imagine, I, I just imagine what God would do with with us and through us in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our cities and through our fellowship if we were all moving and stepping out of our places of comfort in faith to be used by God. Imagine this. Imagine how pleasing that would be to God. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. And then verse 36, we read on about this other instance, right? In Joppa. There are certain disciples there. There was a, a woman of God, Tabitha, Dorcas. She was, she was charitable. She had good character. She loved others. She got sick, and she died. And, and, and her friends responded in this way that if you understand the culture at the time, you're going, what is going on here? But what I see here in this very confusing passage of Scripture as we look at it in light of God's Word and Old Testament and the Jewish culture, what we see is a second aspect of faith. That is pleasing to God. How else is faith pleasing to God? Well, what we read here. And it's this. It's to have a faith that believes and expects that God will do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could imagine or hope for. In fact, I believe this is what is exampled in this section of Scripture as we see the participants in this role, in this account, not just having a belief that God would do big things, but they had an expectation for God to do a great thing. And so we read here that while Peter was still in Lydia in the town of Joppa, a woman of God who had been moving by faith in her own city, in her own way, touching the lives of many people, she got sick and she died. And then I think what we read here about Tabitha's friend is unusual, especially in light of Jewish customs. So my, my genetic heritage is of, of Irish descent. And it's pretty well known that through culturally, at least in the olden days. You know, I don't know so much now, but when an Irish person died and, or that there was a wake and you would prepare the body and it's still this way in many places of the world and you would place the body in a public place for a few days to mourn and to grieve and, 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 and that was customary. Not here, not with the Jewish people. It wasn't customary at all. Mosaic law stated that to handle anything did made a person spiritually unclean. So culturally and customarily, and according to the, what we read in the law, when someone in the Hebrew, Hebrew culture died, they buried them as soon as possible. We see this with Jesus' own death on the cross. We knew that the Sabbath day was coming, and it was late, and yet they wanted to get Jesus off of the cross and into the ground, into the grave. We see a lot more surrounding that, but we know that it was such a... a, a, a a quick means that the women couldn't even they have time to bring the spices and the things that were traditional for burial and they would come later to do so after the sabbath so not burying tabitha right away was an abnormal thing but even more abnormal was the fact that they took tabitha's body and put it upstairs they prepared it and they're like oh well now, well now what should we do uh, put her upstairs 
It's, it's unusual, and I think that the only logical conclusion that we can discern from these actions is that these friends of Tabitha were expecting for her to be raised from the dead. That's what they were expecting. Why do I think that? I believe this because this is exactly, it's exactly, um, I say this because they sent for Peter. That's what, that's what I'm trying to get. It's likely because we've, ter- we've told that the word of God spread throughout this region, that they heard of the miracles that Peter had done. And what they, were, what, they, what they figured is that, hey, Peter's only a little ways away. Let's prepare Tabitha's body, put her upstairs, go get Peter and see what he can do about this. And if this is the case, then I think it's safe to say that this is an awesome display of faith, right? I know we're interjecting a little bit here, but that's an awesome display of faith. And I believe a faith that trusts in God to do the unexplainable and to do the unexpected pleases him. There's a man, Dr. Robert Cook. He's one of the founders of Youth for Christ. He said this, if you can explain what's going on, God didn't do it. I love that. I've had those experiences. I've seen God move in those kinds of ways in my life and through our fellowship. And people have come to us like, how, how, how did you guys do that? The youth center is one of those things. There's other things. It's like, I'm like, I'm seriously, I don't know. God cast a vision, and then all of a sudden it was there. I mean, it's not like it magically just popped out of thin air, but it's, I can't tell you how we got from here to there with all the, I, and it can bring you through the journey, but it's just like, it's, it's, it's unexpected. And so expecting and then preparing for the unexpected, that's the ultimate demonstration of faith. And it's in these times when there's no hope. You ever been there? You ever been in this place where there's no conceivable understanding of how something could come to pass? It's in those times that, that God does things that are unexpected and unexplainable that he is ultimately and completely and wholeheartedly glorified. And I think that's one of the reasons why God expects that kind of faith and actually operates in those ways. And I think there are many examples of this found throughout Scripture that should convince and encourage us to believe that God is capable of unexpected and willing to do exceedingly more than we can hope for or imagine. Those things that should cause us to live in that way. For example, there's a story of a shepherd boy named David. A little shepherd boy. who went down to a riverbed and gathered five smooth stones to slay a mighty giant. Why did he do that? He expected and he was preparing for the unexpected. Nobody expected for David to slay the giant. And yet, David prepared. There's also the account of the children of Israel. This is another one that just kind of is humorous, right? The children of Israel, after crossing into the promised land, right? On dry land, through the the raging river of the Jordan, through the waters of the the Jordan River, they they come to their first city. It's the walled city of Jericho. Walls so thick that chariots would drive side by side all the way around it. And what were the children doing? They were listening to God, but they were expecting and preparing for the unexpected. Why? Because they walked around those city walls as the, the, the city inhabitants of Jericho mocked them from the top of them in silence day after day after day, like God said. And they were preparing for the unexpected as they blew that trumpet 
and the city walls fell to the ground. And here we read again of Tabitha's friends who were who expected and prepared for the unexpected as they, they took her body after preparing it, putting it upstairs, and then sent for Peter to come and raise her back to life. In light of this, I think that God, I think it's safe to say, don't you, that God wants us to expect and prepare for him to do the unexpected? Believing that God who is faithful will always do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever hope for and then more than we could, we could imagine. And in verse 99 and 39, it says, Peter reacting to this request rose, went with them, and when they brought him to the upper room, there where Tabitha's body was out, they saw, he saw people weeping and mourning and lamenting. And Peter, he put him out. And then it says here, he knelt down and prayed. I can't help but what was wondering go through Peter's mind. It's a 10-mile journey from Lydia to Joppa. At least one day's travel by foot. And if it was me... I would probably not be thinking, well, when I get there, I'm simply going to pray and command Tabitha to rise in the name of Jesus. And, and I, I don't know what's going on in Peter's mind, but I think it's safe to say by what we know of Peter that he probably wasn't thinking that either, even though some miraculous things had already happened. Peter did not raise anybody from the dead. I had seen Jesus do that, but yet in here, verse 40, we're told that prior to commanding Tabitha to rise peter put all the people out and he knelt down and prayed and when i look at this i think that peter did this either because he had witnessed jesus to do so remember the daughter of jarius in luke chapter 8 whom jesus rose from the grave jesus put everybody out of the room and and spoke to her and she came back and 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 it was either that or it was this maybe peter was unsure that tabitha would in fact be raised from the dead something to think about but I will tell you this, that's not where our focus should be. Our focus should be here in the fact that Peter knelt down and prayed. He knelt down and prayed prior to speaking to Tabitha, and I think that's what we should focus on because it tells us that he knew if she was to be raised from the dead, it would have to be an act of God and not just an act of his faith. And I believe that Peter's example here is a demonstration of how even a little faith is pleasing to God. It's an example of it. Because a little faith is a faith that steps out and tries something even when there's doubt present. And I, that's okay with God. I, I, I don't even know if there's a time where I've prayed in faith without some form of little doubt there. Where it's just like, yes! I mean, I have faith in God and I know He can do the unexpected and exceedingly more abundant. But there's times when I pray for people who are sick or people who are suffering or hard things that are going on and I'm just like, And yet I get on my knees and I pray. You see, this little face is a faith that says this. I don't know what, God, what God's will is, but let's see what God might do. There's an awesome story of this very thing in 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's going to come up on the screen. It's about Jonathan and his armor bearer, Jonathan the son of Saul. It says, then Jonathan said to a young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go up to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or a few. So his armor-bearer said to him, Do that, uh, all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. 
for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. And so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews, they are coming out of their holes from where they have hidden. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. And that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within a half an acre of land, climbing hand and knee up, fighting a battle. I've heard people say, it's wrong, but I've heard them say that the measure of faith that is exercised is equal to the measure of God's working in your life. It's, it's this kind of thinking. It's, in other words, it's five cents worth of faith will get you five cents of God's working. Zero cents of faith will get you zero cents of God's working. But listen, this thinking is so far off from what the Bible teaches us in regard to the relationship between faith and the works of God. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read of a time when Jesus cast a demon out from this little boy who was suffering from these violent attacks, these demonic attacks. And, and the account ends with this very familiar and somewhat cliche in, in, in Christianity today um, thing in regards to faith, but Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples about why they could not cast out the demon. If you remember, and Jesus said to him in Matthew 17, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why? Why could we not cast it out? And so Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, even as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And listen, by this powerful truth about faith, I believe that Jesus puts down this notion that the amount of faith that we exercise will be in direct proportion to the size of work that God will do. Because Jesus plainly tells us that even if we have a little faith, the size of a mustard seed, that great things of God will come to pass exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever hope for or imagine. And so we end in verse 43. It says that it was that he, Peter, stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. And Luke ends by telling us this, um, the accommodations by with which Peter stayed. And it kind of seems on the surface as insignificant. But it's a transitional piece of information that will take us into chapter 10. We see the preparation that God's doing for the work that's coming ahead. God's hand to prepare Peter to take the gospel message of Jesus to the Gentiles. And I say that because being a tanner meant that Simon would have been looked upon by his fellow Hebrews in the same way that they had looked upon the Gentiles. Concerning he was a tanner. He was in the business of handling dead things on a day-to-day basis. We're in the laws of Moses because Simon handled did things and made him unclean. If you were a Hebrew and you came in contact with him, you too were in then made unclean. And tanners were, were, were at this time, they weren't even allowed to live within the city walls of the city that they dwelt. They were not allowed to go to the temple. They were not allowed to go to the synagogues. They were treated as outcasts and excluded from Jewish society, but through Peter's actions, he shows us once again that in Jesus we're all equal and that none of us should be excluded, 
none of us should be looked down upon. And Simon the Tanner and Peter the Apostle, ultimately we see is they're both sons of God, right? And this is what made them brothers in the Lord. But I'm here to tell you, don't think that Peter's got this all figured out at this point. (laughs) He doesn't. That's because he's staying with Simon the Tanner. Because when it comes to the Gentiles in chapter 10, we're going to see the struggle when God has to tell Peter three times as he's telling him to go to a Gentile, he's all, Peter, do not say what I've made clean is unclean. Three times God has to speak to him. And so I think Simon the Tanner, um, what we read here in Peter's interaction, um, examples one last important truth that we've all talked about in the past regarding faith kind of kind of lifts all what we've talked about up to Romans chapter 10 verse 17 guys it says so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and ultimately a faith that pleases God is a faith that hears God's word and then seeks to obey the things that God has revealed to us and this pleases God why because our obedience is a demonstration of our love for God God sees our love in those times. Debbie, if you and the worship team come up, Jesus said that if we love God, then we'll keep his commands. And Peter stayed with Simon the Tanner, and um, he will go to the Gentiles, and he will share the love of Jesus with them. Why? Because Peter desired to obey God. Peter loved God. He desired to please God. And you see, it all comes together. A faith that pleases God, in conclusion, requires us to be on the move. It requires us to step out of our place of comfort or our places of contentment and look to be used by God. Look for the opportunities to be used by God. It's a faith that pleases God. A a faith that pleases God prepares for and expects God to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever hope for and imagine. A faith that pleases God steps out and, and tries even when there's doubt present. And a pleasing faith hears God's word and obeys them. So remember, faith is not a tool that manipulates God into doing wonderful and amazing things. It's a virtue. Faith is a virtue that when it is ex- exercised by us and, and through us, is first and foremost pleasing to God. And Lord, I pray that would be true. Lord, we know you're pleased with us, but we love you and we want to show you that we love you by how we live and you've called us to live by faith we're grateful for the things that you've called us to we're grateful for the works that you've set before us and i pray god that you would strengthen our faith i remember the man that said lord i believe help my unbelief and i think we all relate to that and and that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of god and it's something that you put in us and you grow in us and so we submit ourselves to you today for that that we would have this kind of faith to move, to step out, to trust, to allow you to direct our path so that we might see you working in our lives and through our lives and that you would be glorified in the lives of people around us. We could step back and see people come to know you and be saved from, saved from their sins, saved from eternal death. Lord, thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray.